Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Paul, for making me feel old. Hallelujah. <laughs> I actually don't feel old, so praise God. But it's such a tremendous joy to be working again with Brooklyn Teen Challenge and, uh, and also Pastor Gary to uh, get to uh, call you my friend. I tell you, it's, uh, it's a joy being a part of uh, what God is doing here. Amen? Yeah. Every once in a while, <clears throat> I get to preach what I need to hear. And tonight is one of those times. Uh, tonight... Uh, without exaggeration, I'm going to share with you, the Lord helping me, the most helpful truths that I've ever received from the Lord. And um, <clears throat> I want to start with one of Paul's prayers. He prayed for the Ephesians. We can put that up on the screen, Ephesians 3:16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, that you may have power to grasp, power to grasp. It takes the Holy Spirit moving in your heart to give you and I tonight the power to grasp the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Father, in the name of Jesus, give us the power to grasp the love of God. Father, in the name of Jesus, you are the almighty God. And we have felt your almighty presence flowing through this room. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us with might by your spirit in our inner man, that we may be able to grasp the love of God for each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen? I told the Teen Challenge students a few weeks ago in a class that I was teaching that this ministry is a spiritual mash unit that we are doing heart surgeries right in the middle of the battlefield amen yeah. mash stands for mobile army surgical hospital referring to the united states army medical units that serve as a fully functioning hospital in a combat zone that's Teen Challenge. We do heart surgeries in the middle of the battlefield of life. I'm saddened to report that some of our patients, they jump off the operating table and walk right out, right in the middle of God operating on their hearts. And it's heartbreaking to us. But I also realize that God is doing heart surgery, not just a teen challenge, but in the lives of all of his people. And I went through a major spiritual heart surgery a few years ago that I want to talk about. And I think that if you have any history with God, you know that sometimes major trials produce the richest blessings. 
Sometimes very hard trials produce very real blessings. And after I had pastored for decades, almost nonstop, an opportunity arose for me to work with Brian Simmons and Peter Wagner in launching a new Bible school in Connecticut. Peter Wagner had been a leader in the church in America since the 1970s. And Brian Simmons is now writing the Passion Translation. So working with these men of God was a tremendous honor. And I put my whole heart into the Bible school that we were developing. And it was devastating to me that it quickly and suddenly shut down three years later. I suddenly found myself with no job, no ministry assignment, no savings, no severance pay. <laughs> I came home and I said, honey, um, the school is closing down. She said, when? I said, next week. The paycheck that I got was the last one that we're getting. I found out because I worked in Connecticut, lived in New York, I did not qualify for unemployment. And my wife said, honey, what are we going to do? If you go out and get a job today, we're still not going to be able to make the rent next month. Well, a girl in one of the Bible schools I worked in years before, uh, she sent me a thank you card uh, saying that her and her husband had moved to Charlotte and gotten married, and her husband got an inheritance, and they wanted to share it with us. And there was a check for the exact amount of our rent. As soon as I opened it up, I said, look, honey, we got the rent paid next month. You know what she said? What about the month after? <laughs> I said, can we celebrate just for a minute before we move on to the next trial? Within a few weeks, I got hired in a job that proved to be the hardest job in my life. I became a part of King Colon Supermarkets in Long Island. I became a part of the reset team. Do you know what the reset team does? We reset a whole aisle every single day. Monday through Friday, we go to a different store. We would empty the shelves, clean them, rearrange them, and then follow a computerized planogram in order to put the products back within a quarter of an inch. Sometimes when I go in a supermarket, I'm like, oh, I got to get out of here. <laughs> Just looking at that picture, oh, got to reset the whole aisle. It was so hard. I had to leave the house at 6 o'clock in the morning just to make sure that I got to work at 8 o'clock. Once I was 10 minutes late and my boss came up to me and said, if you're late again in the next six months, don't even bother coming in. I have 100 people who would, want, who would love your job. I don't have to put up with your hardy, tardiness. Hardy, it wasn't hardy, it was tardy. <laughs> And I wanted to say, you have 100 people who love this job? I don't even like this job. <laughs> Why don't I just quit so you can hire one of those guys who loves this job? But I had rent to pay and a wife to take care of, so I held my tongue. 
Besides, I wasn't frustrated with my boss. I was frustrated with my God. Do you know why they call it Long Island? I'll tell you why. It is a long island. There's a King Colon 30 miles east of Riverhead. I mean, I had to get up so early. And on those long drives, I began to complain to God. I said, God, what is happening to my life? I worked in a grocery store in high school before you called me into the ministry. Lord, I've been faithfully serving you for years. What went wrong? Why are you punishing me, God? Why are you mad at me? No answer. After a few weeks, I decided, you know what? I better start worshiping God on my long morning commutes. So I began to take worship CDs in my car and began to worship the Lord. As I began to worship and praise him, God began to speak to me. He said, this isn't punishment. This is a privilege. This is halftime in your ministry life. Time to put the football down. Time to come off the playing field for a little while and allow Coach Jesus to speak to you. <laughs> so I said, okay, Lord, I'll sit on the bench and listen to what you have to say. I imagine you'll say to me, you did a pretty good job those first two quarters, except those three interceptions you threw. <laughs> he said, Charles, your heart doesn't just need tweaking. You need a major overhaul. I said, oh, boy, sounds like heart surgery. <laughs> sounds like this is going to take some time. And finally, the Lord spoke to me, and he said this. You have been a faithful servant of God in New York City for decades. But for the rest of your life, I want your main focus to be on being my son and not just my servant. I said, well, God, how do I do that? And I knew I would find the answers in the Gospel of John. John 8:31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, Notice who he's talking to. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. He's not talking to the, the Gentiles. He's not talking to the unsaved. He's talking to the people of God who believed him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I began to meditate on that verse over and over, literally meditating on it for months. God, what does this verse really say? What exactly are you saying here? I didn't have to preach on Sundays anymore, but I was used to working on sermons all through the week. So I just dug in to the Gospel of John and dug into chapter 8 and meditate and I said God how does knowing the word how does knowing the truth make us free is Jesus merely talking about 
truth sets us free from ignorance. Like many college logos, they say the truth shall make you free. It's deeper than that. The Jews who originally heard this, they objected to Jesus' statement about needing to be made free for some reason. Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's servants. We are, Ab excuse me, we are Abraham's descendants. Next, next verse. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? I mean, that's strange. They were in Egyptian bondage. They were in Babylonian captivity. And now they're bound to Rome. Why would they say we've never been in bondage? I don't know why they said that, but at least it caused the Lord to explain further what he meant. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house, the household, forever. But a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. When the Son makes us free, we're not just free from the guilt and the dominating power of sin. We are freed from slavery and we are brought into sonship, into Jesus' sonship. Jesus, the Son, shares his position in the family of God with us, making us sons of God and daughters of God, just as he is God's Son. Jesus sets us free by making us sons. Hallelujah. He said in the next slide, I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me. Abraham did not do such things. In other words, Jesus was saying to them, just because you're a descendant of Abraham does not assure that you will remain in the family forever. Slaves don't remain in the household forever, just like a household maid or a nanny would not feel entitled to the same lifelong treatment the children in the family enjoy. Even if we are descendants of Abraham, with the coming of Christ and the new covenant, our slavery to sin puts us all in the category of the child that Abraham had with Sarah's servant, Hagar. Hagar was eventually cast out of the family along with her son, Ishmael. But Isaac remained forever, and Jesus remains forever. And those who Jesus sets free remain forever in the household because he shares his sonship with us. The truth that sets us free is this. The truth of who Jesus is. The truth of who we are without Christ and the truth of who we are in Christ. You can go about two slides ahead, if you could. The truth of who Jesus is, the Son of God. The truth of who we are without Christ, slaves to sin. The truth of who we are in Christ, sons of God. I'll say it again. The Son makes us free by making us sons. And the deeper we grasp our sonship, the freer we will become. 
and the truth contains in God's word sets us free from both sin and a slavery mentality. And the truth is, the main thing that hinders us from grasping, grasping our sonship in Christ is our father wounds. I believe we all have them to one degree or another. You say, what is a father wound? Wounds to our hearts due to the sins and the inadequacies and the shortcomings of our fathers and our mothers and, our, and the other authority figures in our lives. My dad had such an anger problem that I thought God the Father was angry with me whenever life got hard or whenever I fell short, which is all the time. And I had to come to the realization I got saved when I was 16. My dad died, my, excuse me, not, my dad died when I was 16. I got saved when I was 17. I began pastoring when I was 27. When I was 47, God began to show me that I was seeing God through the lenses of my earthly father. The reason why I thought God was mad at me was because my father was often angry with his children. Did you know that many well-known atheists had horrible or non-existent relationships with their earthly fathers, causing them to feel that God is non-existent. When my dad died when I was 16, I got saved when I was 17. I thought, well, you know, I thank God that, you know, I, I want to honor the memory of my dad. He was as good a dad as he probably possibly could be, but he had so many frustrations and he had so much anger that, he didn't realize how much it was hurting his kids. I didn't realize pastoring for 20 years, having this dark cloud over me like, like Jesus I love. He died for me. The Holy Spirit, I love when he moves. But the Father, you better not get him mad at you. As a matter of fact, he's probably already mad at you. That's the way my heart defaulted back to my view of Father. But no matter how horrible or inadequate or imperfect or non-existent, our earthly fathers were or are, now that we are in Christ, we all have a perfect heavenly father. That is the truth. And it gets better. Jesus, the one who knows the father better than anyone else, described him in Luke 15, Luke 15, 20. 
He got up and went to his father, the prodigal son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate with music and dancing. So according to Jesus, the father, your father, is a compassionate, huggy, kissy, forgiving, restoring, celebrating, music-loving, party-throwing father. <laughs> and Jesus has come to bring us to that father. Let's show some pics of the uh, prodigal son and the father. Isn't that cool? There's two more. I love that one. Jesus has come to show us God the Father and then bring us into his embrace. John 14, 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is the exact image of the Father. For instance, just like the Father is extravagantly generous, so is Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 21, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Father wants to give you the kingdom. He's going to hold nothing back. He'll give you everything. Everything you need. And Jesus is determined to share with you and I his most prized possession. Jesus' most prized possession is not his word, his spirit, his blood, his life, his joy, his peace, his presence. Jesus' most prized possession is his relationship with Father God. And he gives that to you and me. 
Jesus shares with us his very own standing with God the Father in all of its affection and glory and wonder, summed up in the words, the bosom of the Father. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Or as the NIV says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. The Tree of Life version says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only God in the Father's embrace has made him known. Jesus, from eternity past and forevermore, lives in the bosom of the Father. He lives in the embrace of Father God. That is where he is, and that is where he is determined to bring you and me into. The early church acknowledged that Jesus' eternal dwelling place is in the bosom of the Father. Anastasia of Alexandria in 296 wrote a statement of faith which says, at the consummation of the ages, Jesus descended from the bosom of the Father. So the church acknowledged long, long time ago that Jesus, the eternal Son, always has always will abide in the bosom of the Father. But what the church has not yet embraced is the fact that Jesus is determined to share that place with you and me today, now in this life. In John 14, 2, in the New American Standard, Jesus said, in my Father's house, or household, or many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is what John 14, 2 means. Jesus went to the cross to prepare a place for us in the bosom of the Father so that where he now is, there we can be also. By the way, many Greek scholars such as Craig Keener, Raymond Brown, Robert Gundry, and St. Augustine agrees with this interpretation. For example, Raymond Brown wrote, This special house, John 14.2, where the Son has a permanent dwelling place, suggests a union with the Father reserved for Jesus the Son and for all those who are God's children. Now, if you're stuck on the King James Version, you might think that this refers to Jesus building you a heavenly mansion. I picture a group of people arriving in heaven, an angel announcing we got a bunch of King James-only mansion seekers arriving at gate number two. 
bunch of Christians in heaven. Where's my mansion? Where's my mansion? Where's my mansion? Where's my mansion? And the angel says, <clears throat> uh, St. Jerome, can you go over there and talk to them? And Jerome says, well, you know, in the fourth century, when I translated the Greek New Testament into Latin, I used the word mansion. But the Greek is actually dwelling place, meaning the place where Jesus dwells, we now can dwell. So where does Jesus dwell? In the hugs of the Father, in the embrace of Father God. When you get to heaven and God the Father comes up to you and says, son, come here, or daughter, come here. Let me give you a hug. And Father God wraps you in his bear hug arms. And you feel the incredible, awesome, perfect, huggy, kissy, compassionate, party-throwing, music-loving love of this Father God. Many of you are going to say, how I wish I knew this love on earth. And God the Father, when he gets done hugging you, will look you in the eyes and say, didn't you read the Gospel of John? It's in there. It's in there. Let me read a little more from the Gospel of John. Amen. <laughs> John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am in the bosom of the Father, that where I am, there you may be also. Verse 4. And the way you know, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now we read John 14, 6 like it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to heaven except through me. That's the way we read it. That's not what it says. I mean, it's true. No one goes to heaven except through Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying here, no one comes. Present tense. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. The highway, the road, but the Father is the destination. If I had called Pastor Paul this afternoon and said, Pastor Paul, I'm on the way. Matter of fact, I broke down on the way. I'm stuck on the Van Wick Expressway. 
but it's the way, so I'm okay. He'd say, well, since you're preaching tonight, how are you going to get to the destination in time? Jesus is the way, but the Father's embrace of you is the destination. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the truth about the Father. The way to the Father's hug is to receive the truth of what Jesus says about the Father, and it'll bring you into the Father's embrace, and there you will find life. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. I love the Father. <laughs> I'm starting to love him as much as I love Jesus. He's not a mean dad. He's not a mad God. He's just as loving as Jesus. He's just as compassionate as Jesus. He's just as kind as Jesus. Because Jesus is as kind as he is. Jesus came to reveal him. And when he said, I, they said, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus answered uh, like triple. Well, I'm going to tell you the way, and I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to tell you the life. I am the way to the Father, and I am the truth. Jesus is the truth about Father God. You see Jesus, you see the Father. You see Jesus' love for you, the lies about God the Father not loving you are destroyed. You see the truth of how compassionate Jesus is, you are seeing how much your heavenly Father loves you. Jesus came to reveal the truth of Father God, truly revealing his love and his character. Jesus brings us into the life and the love and the embrace of the Father. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, it could be simply put like this. The way to the Father is to accept the truth into your life. Truth. Jesus has given us his sonship. Truth. Jesus has given us his standing with Father. Truth. Jesus and the Father both Love and cherish you. Truth. The Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. And one last verse, John 17, 23. Jesus prayed, Father, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them. As much as you love me.
here's the truth. The Father, our Father, your Father, is a compassionate, huggy, kissy, forgiving, restoring, celebrating, music-loving, party-throwing Father. He will either here on earth or in heaven embrace you to life when he hugs you. Let him hug you. That is the destination. Heavenly Father, wonderful Heavenly Father, some of us have father wounds that run very deep. And I don't want to uncover a wound without allowing you, Father God, to run to your son, run to your daughter, and hug them. You are the prodigal father running to your children. When we start, we just start coming to you, you run to us. You hug us. You put a ring on our hand. You put shoes on our feet. You rejoice that we have come home. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would make our sonship in Christ such a reality in our hearts. Father God, in the name of Jesus, make these truths reality inside of us.